And so it's against that backdrop and, and what we're doing that we wanted to take the opportunity before we launch membership and eldership to talk about what kind of church we want to be, to consider what should it look like to be a member at Foundation Church. And we're eager as much as possible in that to be faithful to what we find in Scripture. That what we read of the church here in the New Testament should be true of us as much as we can possibly be so. So that we consider what did they give themselves to? What were they committed to? That we might also give ourselves to those things and be committed to those things. Faithful Christians throughout the ages have always sought to do that. Have looked at the church in scripture and said, this is our model. This is our pattern. What should we do? And so we've already seen in the last couple of sessions that they were devoted, or another way of expressing that is that they're all in, or that they continued steadfastly. So it wasn't a one-time commitment, but that as this first church, this first group of people who had encountered the saving grace, the loving kindness of Jesus Christ, responded to that in committing to some things together and continuing steadfastly to walk in those things. And the first two things we've seen is that they committed and continued in wanting to understand and apply Scripture. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Not to examine and sit in judgment over it, but to submit themselves to God's Word, to allow it to be the benchmark and the plumb line for their lives. Guys, we want to do the same here. I'm not interested in what the latest cultural fad is. I want to know what God's enduring word says to us. That's the foundation we're building on here. We want to be devoted to that. And then we read last week that they were devoted to the fellowship. Or in other words, they were devoted to one another, to being together, to caring for one another to loving and serving one another. You know, Scripture is packed full of one another commands to Christians. I like bear with one another and prefer one another and love one another and serve one another and a myriad of others. That's what it meant that they were devoted to the fellowship. That they weren't just casual acquaintances, but a deep, committed community who said, we're, we're together through thick and thin, when we wind each other up and frustrate each other, when we get on each other's nerves, in the highs and lows of life, we're in this together. And we want no less here. Actually, I'm thoroughly convinced that God's word calls us to it. So we're going to read on now and see what else they were devoted to. So if you've got your Bibles, I would encourage you to open them up. Don't just take my word for it that this is what it says. We're in Acts 2. We're going to Begin by reading those verses from 42 to 47, uh, and then we'll head out from there, and there will be a number of other passages we look at together. So we read this in Acts 2, 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, 
And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. What's the next thing we find in this sequence of things they were devoted to? They were devoted to the breaking of bread, we read. And that they were breaking bread in their homes and receiving their food with glad and generous hearts. They ate together. They broke bread in each other's homes. They were grateful to God for the provision of food that he'd given to them. There was, there was fellowship around meals. That, that, that was a key feature of the way the early church lived. But there was a specific meal to which they were particularly devoted. The breaking of bread. And some of you will instantly go, I know what that is. And some of you will be like, bread. <laughs> He's talking about communion. They shared it often, and so do we. I mean, if you've been with us any length of time, you'll know that we break bread together pretty well every Sunday as part of our gathering. It's a very unusual Sunday if we don't share communion. But why? <laughs> why was it so significant for them? that they did it consistently, regularly, as they gathered. What was and is so significant about this simple meal of bread and wine that Christians throughout the last 2,000 years have been devoted to it? I think the best place to start in answering that question is at the start, when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper and we can read about it in Luke chapter 22. So we're going to read together from Luke 22, verse 7, down to verse 20. We read this. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them. They prepared the Passover. When the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. 
And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The first reason that Jesus' first followers took communion regularly, and why we do, is that Jesus commanded it. (laughs) We read in verse 9, didn't we? Verse 19, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus instructed them and in turn us to eat the bread and drink the wine in remembrance of him. Now this is interesting. There's so much in that Luke 22 passage that we could go into. Um, I, I would love to spend ages talking about Passover and why Luke five times in 13 verses tells us it's the Passover. He will not let us forget or overlook that fact, but we don't really have time today, but if you're intrigued, then I'd love to talk to you about it sometime. But Jesus didn't just tell them to remember. He he didn't just instruct them, remember me. He gave them a physical act to help them and to help us. He took bread and wine as physical representations of his body and his blood that would be broken and poured out as physical reminders for them. Now this is good (laughs) because we're forgetful. Having a physical, tangible act helps us very vividly to remember practically engage our senses in the act of remembering. But why was he so eager we would remember? What does he want us to remember when we come to the table? I think we can take this in three chunks. Past, present, and future. And I think Jesus intended us to. Past, we remember who he is and what he has done for us what he has already accomplished. When we come to the table, we come to remember that his body was broken so that we might be made whole. We come to remember that his blood was poured out that we might be washed clean. The Bible is very clear. That the wages of sin or the penalty of sin is death. The, the, the consequence of rebelling against God is death, which actually makes a good deal of sense when thought about logically. It makes sense that when we reject God, who is the giver of life, God who spoke this world into motion, who formed humanity from the dust and put the breath of life into our lungs, 
who sustains all things by the power of his word, that, that when we reject the giver of life, when we say to him, either with our words or our actions, I want life on my terms, not yours, then what we get for ourselves is death. That, that makes logical sense, doesn't it? If you reject the giver of life, then what you earn for yourself is separation from the giver of life, and therefore, death. Yet Jesus came, the perfect Son of God, the eternal Son of God, came and stepped into our brokenness and lived in perfect obedience to God the Father. He never once rebelled against the giver of life. Where we have failed, every one of us has failed, he succeeded perfectly. And then he willingly went to the cross and offered us the most phenomenal exchange. His perfection for our mess. His wholeness for our brokenness. His obedience for our disobedience. We read in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, that at the cross, God made him who had no sin or knew no sin, that is Jesus, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Incredible exchange. The most phenomenal exchange that, that we can be forgiven, that we can come into relationship with God, we can have fullness of life now and for eternity because Jesus bore on himself at Calvary the punishment that we rightly deserved, that you rightly deserved. When we come to the table, we remember what he has done for us. But we also remember what that means for us right now. We remember our present standing because of him as we come to the table. Now what do I mean by that? See, communion is a vivid picture of our union with Christ. There's loads of places we could go in Scripture for this. I'm just going to put a couple. The first is John 6, verse 56. Jesus said this. He talks about himself as the bread of life. And then he said these words. He said, he who eats my flesh, or eats of my flesh, and drinks of my blood, abides in me, and I in him. As we take communion... As we eat of his flesh, as it were, and we drink of his blood, the bread and the wine, we're stating again, I'm with you, Jesus. I'm in you. I'm trusting you and you alone to save me. And in response, he is saying to us, and you are mine. Whoever eats of my flesh and drinks of my blood abides in me and I in him. Yes, you are mine and I am yours. 
But more than that, we're united. We're bound together. (laughs) This is one of the most extraordinary doctrines I think that you could possibly ever hope to get your head around. That when you put your trust in him, (laughs) when you come to him, in some incredible way, we are united with him so completely that what is true of him is true of you right now, if you're a Christian. What is true of him is true of you, which is mind-blowing. The reformer Martin Luther helped us understand it a little like this. He said, by faith, you are so cemented to Christ that he and you are as one person which can never be separated. Isn't that a staggering thing to assert? By faith, you are so cemented to Christ that he and you are as one person which cannot ever be separated. You're attached to him forever. (laughs) Where did Martin Luther get that extraordinary statement from? Jesus, amongst other sources, but Jesus... See, when Saul, who had been going around arresting and persecuting Christians and overseeing the killing of Christians, met the risen Christ Jesus on the road to Damascus, what did Jesus say to him? He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus so identifies with his people with the church, with you, if you are in Christ. That he said to Saul, who was persecuting Christians, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus so identifies with you, so views his unity with Christians so intensely that persecuting them is felt personally as persecuting him. This is extraordinary, isn't it? If you're a Christian, you are united with Jesus. And not just in our suffering, but I think most amazingly in his strength. His victory is our victory. Everything that is true of Christ is true of those who are in Christ. Being united with him, you do not somehow drag him down to your level. In your sin and your failure, you do not somehow pull Christ down. No, he lifts you up. When the Father sees you, (laughs) he doesn't see your brokenness and your failures. No, he sees the Son's perfect righteousness. Not your rebellion, but his obedience. Remember what we read earlier. That 2 Corinthians passage. In him you have been made the righteousness of God. 
I mean, it's not that you've done something. You've been made the righteousness of God. You're so associated with Christ in the eyes of God the Father that when he looks on you, he sees perfect, spotless righteousness. Not yours, but Jesus's, given to you as though it were yours. Paul writes in another of his letters in Colossians 3, another way in which we're united with Christ. He says this in Colossians 3. He says, if then or since then you have been raised with Christ, and then he goes on to talk about how we will live in the light of that, since then you have been raised with Christ. I don't know about you, but like, do you feel like you've been raised from the dead? Because positionally, in the eyes of God, you have been. His victory is your victory. Because he has been raised from the dead, so too you have been raised to new life. Life imperishable. Life eternal is yours in him. No longer a slave to sin. No longer Bound to death, but free. Bound to Christ. Raised to new life. This is true right now if you're a Christian. <laughs> but we don't always live like it, do we? And we don't always feel like it. But Christ gave us communion <laughs> as a reminder that we come and as we partake of his flesh and blood, a visual, vibrant reminder that we taste and ingest into ourselves. We experience in some way our unity with him. When we come to the table, we're reminded that what is true of him is true of us. As we partake of his body and his blood, we declare again to ourselves and to one another that we're united with him and we delight in that unity. Christ gave us communion as a reminder of what he has done for us, and as a reminder right now that we are united with him, we are bound to him, that we can never be taken from his hand. But as well as a reminder of our unity with him, it is also crucially a reminder of our unity in him with one another. Christ gave communion to preserve the unity of the church. We are united, firstly, in our common need of a saviour. And every time we come to the table, we're reminded of that fact. It levels us. There are no first and second class citizens at the table of our Lord. Each one of us is in need of a saviour. 
Not one of us is exempt from that need. Not one of us is exempt from the need of his body broken and blood shed on our behalf. None of us has ever or will ever live a good enough life to approach God on our own merit. All have fallen short, including you. We come to the table united in our need of sins forgiven and conscience cleansed. But more than just united in our need, we're united in spirit. Just as we are joined to him, we're joined to other Christians. Every single one of them around the world, throughout history. Communion is a vital reminder of this truth. Again, there's so many places we could go, but the Corinthian church, I think, are a a helpful place for us to turn. See, the Corinthian church, sadly, like many other church communities since then, were divided over all kinds of things. There was infighting over all sorts of issues. They were divided around leadership. Some said, I'm for Paul. And others, I'm for Apollos. They wanted their man. They were divided over racial lines, Jews and Gentiles. They were divided over socioeconomic lines, slaves and free. And writing into that context, fully aware of these things that they were allowing to divide them, Paul said this. We read from 1 Corinthians 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. And we read slightly later from verse 24 in the same passage. But God has so composed the body giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Paul wanted them to understand, and we must understand that in Christ, if you are united with him, if you have received his spirit, which if you're a Christian, by the way, you have, you cannot come to the Father except through the Son by the work of the Spirit. You can't. You can't. If you're a Christian, you have received that one spirit. You're brought into that one body in union with Christ, united with one another. There can be no division. Unity with him is unity with his people. All barriers and divides are removed. Your primary identity is not that you are British or South African or Australian or whatever else you might be. It's not that you're black or white. Your primary identity is not that you are married or single or father or mother or son or engineer or consultant or doctor or climbing instructor or athlete. It's not that you're the smartest or funniest or strongest or fastest or anything else that you might be tempted 
to view as something that defines you as a person. No. Your identity, if you are a Christian, is that you are in Christ. And in Christ, you are inextricably permanently connected with other Christians, with everyone else who is in Christ. Communion is a powerful reminder of that fact, that we come together as those who have received one spirit. We come together to share in one loaf, and it's quite deliberate we have one loaf representing Christ, his body. Only one lived perfectly. Only one made a perfect sacrifice on your behalf. Only one made it possible for you to be forgiven and receive salvation. Only one, and his name is Jesus, and we are united in him. That's what we declare when we share communion together. It's not our common interest in whatever it might be. It's not our Britishness or our middle-classness. It's not any other thing that we celebrate as uniting us when we gather to worship and when we come to the table. No. It's that we are united in him. And finally, having been reminded of what he has done, And having been reminded of our present unity in him. We're reminded of what is yet to come. Our future hope. Because communion is a meal of promise. Communion is a reminder of our eternal destination of those who are in Christ Jesus. Communion points us forward. I don't know if you noticed when we read earlier in Luke chapter 22... But Jesus said to them, let's turn to it quickly, because he says it twice. He says in verse 15, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. As in, there will be a day when I will feast with my people again. But it's not going to be until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And as he gives them the cup, he says, take this and divide it amongst yourselves. In verse 17, then 18, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Jesus is pointing them forward to a day when he will eat and drink with his people again, when he will feast with them again. What's he referring to? I think we read in Revelation chapter 19. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, hallelujah, For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. 
Who is the lamb? It's Jesus. Who is the bride? It is his church. It's you and I. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. It was granted to her. It's not her earning. It's not her doing. It's not your righteousness. It's his given to you. He who knew no sin became sin, that you might be called the righteousness of God, clothed in fine linen, bright and pure. The linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. This is what Jesus is referring to. We read of it in Isaiah 25 as well. Jesus refers to it in Matthew 22, 1 to 14, and in Matthew 25, 1 to 13 as well. Of Christ, the groom, and his bride, the church, united in marriage, in eternal, unbreakable covenant, perfect unity forever. to fully realize and enjoy forever the unity that is ours with him. No sin, no shame, no sorrow. Every tear wiped away from every eye. And this is a sure and certain hope. It's the promise we have. It's not some faint, maybe one day fantasy. This is a sure and certain hope. We read this in, in 1 Peter chapter 1. This is one of my favorite passages about this future hope and the certainty we have in Christ. We read this from verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To what? To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And this is the great bit. Kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is brilliant. You are united with Jesus. We celebrate at the table what he has done for us. We're reminded of our present unity with him and with one another. And we're reminded of our future hope, which we read here is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, that... that he is doing something proactive about. Because it says that it is being kept in heaven for us. Jesus is preserving and assuring our inheritance. Right now. He never loses anything. He's keeping it for you. It is sure. And what's more, and I love this, particularly when life feels hard, I love this. It says, who's it being kept in heaven for? You. 
who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation. Your inheritance is being kept by Jesus. It's certain. And what's more, he's keeping you for it. It is being preserved for you, and you are by faith in him being preserved for it. That is as certain as it gets. It's like a double lock guarantee. He is preserving your inheritance for you. And he, by his grace right now, is preserving you for it. You are held fast in his hand. If you are united with him, there will never be a moment where that ceases to be the case. However low you feel, however difficult life gets, however much you feel like you've screwed it up, And thrown it away. If you are in Christ, he is preserving you for your inheritance. Just as he is holding it safe for you. This is the invite for you today to come to the table. To remember what he has done. What he is doing right now. And what we will enjoy with him for all eternity. I want to invite you to come in just a second. We're going to respond and and share communion together. But I want to just say, as we often do, I, I hope you understand from the way I've just spoken about what we're going to do, that this is a meal for Christians. This is an act of remembrance and celebration for those who have put their trust in Jesus. And, and if you haven't done that, then I would say, please don't take this, because it means nothing to you. It means none of the things I've talked about today. But it can do. If you haven't yet put your trust in Jesus, then I want to encourage you, you can do that right now. You can know the joy of sins forgiven and conscience cleansed. You can know the weight taken off your shoulders, that it is not about trying to be good enough, but in putting your trust in him. It's knowing that he has done everything necessary, that you're not trying to somehow earn God's approval or anyone else's by being the best or smartest or strongest or whatever it might be. You're not trying to earn approval by any of those metrics, but instead you can come and delight in the fact that you are fully known and fully loved because he who knew no sin became sin for you at the cross. He who was in no way slave or captive to anything allowed himself to be broken at the cross that you might be made whole. And if you want that today, then I want to encourage you to just pray very simply with me now. 